So if you look at your passage, if you have your Bibles today, turn to Luke chapter 16. You can look at the passage if you don't have a Bible in your bulletin. Jesus gives us a parable. It's a pretty well-known parable. A lot of people have misinterpreted it and thought that the point was to, to teach about uh, hell and heaven and things like that. That's not really the point of this parable. But we're going to work through it for the next few minutes. So uh, Jesus says there is a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. So this is a guy who wore his ostentatious wealth on his sleeves, literally, and just, you know, more wine, more ham. You know, he just he just was a self-indulgent uh, rich man. He's a picture of someone who is imprisoned by worldly pleasure. Who thinks he's free, but is actually a slave of his own passions. And then Jesus introduces someone else in the parable. He says, at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Yuck. But Lazarus is a picture of someone fully aware of their need for grace. Someone who's desperate, who's got nothing but sickness and disease. And so is aware of his need for people to have pity on him and to take mercy and to have mercy on him. Now, the parable moves on. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. It's a, a Jewish, uh, there's some, some Judaism beliefs going on here, which that there will be a feast and Abraham will be present. Yes, we believe that. He's with God now and that there will be a feast table and that we will be feasting at the side of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs. And so the poor man, Lazarus, gets carried to the heavenly places. But the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, which is some translations translate hell, um, being in torment, lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and saw Lazarus at his side. Now, watch how this rich man uh, deals with his situation. He says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. <laughs> He still sees Lazarus as a filthy servant. Won't address him directly. He says, Father Abraham, I don't like these flames. I don't like this torment. Get, uh, get what's his name? Uh, yeah, Lazarus. Get him to come and serve me. See, there's a hardness of heart that has uh, perpetuated, a perpetual hardness of heart in this man's life. He's still hard-hearted and he's in hell. C.S. Lewis uh, brilliantly said this. The damned are, in one sense, successful, rebels to the end. The doors of hell are locked on the inside. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. You see, the rich man wants out of the torment of hell, but that doesn't mean that his heart has changed and become desirous of grace. It just means that he doesn't like the torment of hell. He has not surrendered to the Spirit of God for transformation. Friends, this is ultimately how people choose hell. They say, in essence, to the Spirit of God, no thanks, I'm good, I'm fine just by myself. I want to continue to delight in a life that is centered on me. Now, Lazarus, interestingly enough, it comes from a name, Eleazar, which means God helps. So, 
Lazarus is this figure, this character in this parable. He's fictional, but he's a, he's a figure who's aware that he has nothing but God to help him in his desperate situation. And so he becomes a recipient of grace and eternal life. Paul, uh, St. Paul writing in the New Testament to the church in Ephesus, he said this, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Have you ever gone into a graveyard and tried to wake up anybody from their, 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 their slumber? Only God can do that. But this is the picture, Paul says, of people who are broken in their sin. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. For it is by grace that you have been saved. This is not a result of works. We're going to say something about that in just a minute. This is not a result of works that any man should boast. It's only a miracle of the hand of God and the Spirit of God that can take a sinner and wake them up from their death sleep and say, wake up, today you come alive. It's what we call grace. Grace is just a word, it just means gift. You can't earn it. You can just realize your need for it, like Lazarus. And so Lazarus is a beautiful picture of the sinner who knows he has nothing to cling to except for the cross of Jesus Christ. He's got nothing but the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the rich man, he begs for his family to be warned. He says, Father Abraham, uh, at least send someone to my father's house because I have five brothers. They need to be rewarded. They need to be warned to turn from their lifestyle of sumptuous feasting and arrogance and riches so that they don't have to enter into this torment, too. And Abraham says they have the law and the prophets. They have the scriptures. Even if someone was sent to them from the dead, they would not believe. Jesus is jabbing at the Pharisee, the scribes and Pharisees who don't believe in him. He says, you have the scriptures and you think that you find life in them, but these lead to me. And so he's saying, no, those who have access to God's word in this life and they reject it and they refuse it and they decide to have a hardened heart. God will give them over to a hardened heart. Paul says as much in the New Testament. He said God will send for people who consist in their, their, they continue in their unrepentance and their unwillingness to receive the grace and love of God. He said God will send them a powerful delusion to believe the lie that they can have life apart from his grace. Abraham says it's not going to do any good. Now, here's what I want to say about good works. Because People make the mistake of interpreting this parable in a moralistic way. That is, they think it is about living a better moral life so that you can get into heaven. Friends, the rich man doesn't go to hell because he's not shown enough good works. He is in hell because he has persistently said no to the transforming work of grace. And it shows in the way that he handles his possession. That's just the fruit of a heart that's not been transformed by God's grace. Nobody goes to heaven by feeding the poor or clothing the poor or visiting those in prison. Those are things that we do because our hearts have been so transformed by what Jesus did for us and said, you're a dead sleeping sinner and I'm waking you up and making you my son, my daughter, because I love you that much, even though you're rebelling against me. That's eternal life. That's it. And everything else that we do in life is a response to that grace. It shows that whether or not our heart has been transformed. 
So the parable's meaning, really what it tells us, it tells us what the love of this world does to our hearts. First John chapter 2 says this, do not love the world. Do not agape the world. Do not deeply love, be in love with this world or the things in the world, material possessions. For the love of the Father is not in those who love the world. If you love this world, if your heart is filled up with love and affection for possessions and power and fame and sex and money and all that stuff, you don't have any room to love your heavenly Father. The two are at odds. Jesus says no one can serve two masters. You see, when we become confident and comfortable in our own possessions, our abilities, etc., etc., we fail to see ourselves as beggars before God in need of His grace. This is exactly what happened to the rich man. He knew the Scriptures. Abraham said, you're a Jew, you know the Scriptures, your brothers have the Scriptures. But he didn't know God. He didn't have a heart transformed by grace. And so as with everything, friends, what God is concerned about in speaking to us through his word today is about where our hearts are in relation to him. He's a person, not a principle. And he wants relationship with you, not perfect doctrine or theology degrees or good works. He wants relationship with us. And the good works, God prepared us before, God, Paul says God prepared good works beforehand that we would walk in them. He has a plan for you to live a life of good works. I am all about good works. Faith without works is dead, James says. But it's not the good works that earns your way to God. It's his grace that singles you out and puts a call on your life and sends his Holy Spirit to wake you up from your slumber and to transform your heart by grace. But the mistake of moralism says this parable tells me that I just need to give more to the poor and I'll be good with God. There's a lot of people who think that I just got to do a little bit more and God will be fine, even though I'm, you know, sleeping with someone who's not my wife and uh, going to the bar, you know, three nights a week and things like that. I just do some more good works. I'll be good with you, the man upstairs. Right. I just think I think that language like the man upstairs, it's so disrespectful. It's so unbiblical and ungodly. It's like, yeah, my my buddy up there. Hey, I scratch your back. You scratch mine. Oh, ugh. That's a holy God. And the, the, the work that he wants to do in our lives is a holy and beautiful thing. And to, to be smug about who he is and think that we can earn his affection or just appease him like he's some pagan God. He wants us. Relationship. See, Satan, he says to us, look, you have a great life. You, you're comfortable the bills are made. You've got a lot of money in the bank. You've got the boat. You've got the golf passes. You've got everything. You're good. You're blessed. Just throw a little prayer in there, here and there, and you're good with God. Just come to church once in a while, at least on Christmas and Easter, and you're good with God. No. It doesn't work like that. God will not be mocked when he offers relationship to us. You see, the reality, friends, is this. If I don't have Jesus... I don't have anything. Because when you die, and you will, does it, has anyone known anybody who uh, is immortal other than Jesus who's been raised from the dead? <laughs> we'll all die. And when you die, you will see him face to face. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We will see him face to face and you will be immediately overcome by the sense of whether or not he was your everything in this life. Some people will be overwhelmed by a feeling of joy and elation and some by dread because it'll be a the reality. It'll be a wake up call. 
He wasn't everything. I liked religion. I liked attending church, but I didn't love him. He wasn't my everything. I'm not trying to be uh, scary and use scare tactics and things like that, but it's what the word of God says because God wants us to take seriously how much he has passion for us and yearns for relationship with us. You see, this has everything to do, as does everything in the Bible, with God's overwhelming, lavish grace. It has everything to do with grace. His grace towards sinners. Because hearts that have truly received grace will be changed, including the way we respond to the needs of our neighbors. The parable is about dealing with the needs of your neighbors. It does address that. But what it's fundamentally addressing is saying, do you have a heart that is changed by grace? Or do you have one that's saying, No thanks, I'm good. First John says, we love because he first loved us. If you've actually received his love in a way that changes your life, you will reciprocate it to other people. It will flow out of you like rivers of living water. People say, man, this person is so loving. I don't get it. It's different than the other people I work with. They're just, they're, they just love people. They just love on people and people don't deserve it. They love on the people that nobody else likes. We love because he first loved us. You see, sometimes the grace that we're called to extend, it's nothing more. It's in handing a $5 bill for someone to get a bus pass. Sometimes it's, you know, missing an appointment, a hair appointment, because you need to give somebody a listening ear who's in a bad place. Sometimes the grace is acknowledging the dignity of every person, even people that a part of you is repulsed by and loving them as Jesus would love them. Sometimes the grace is selling everything and becoming a missionary in another country or supporting one. Grace is a gift. It is to give what is not deserved. It is what God did for us, gave us what we didn't deserve, eternal life, freedom, His Holy Spirit, His eternal riches and rewards. It's a gift. The Christian life is a gift. And so the true Christian will be one who freely gifts time, money, energy, and the message of the gospel to others as a way of life. It will just be a way of life. It will just be, give my money away. It's just stupid money. I give my time away. So what? It's a hair appointment. I get the, whatever you women call them, the dead ends or whatever, the split ends. I'll wait a week. Because I just want to give grace to people. I want to die to me and be for other people. That's what Jesus did. That's what he wants. He wants us to be more like him. Jesus said this, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. That means there's treasure in heaven. There's rewards in the life to come. And different people will reap different rewards based on how they live their life. Again, this is not a system of good works to get you into heaven. It is what happens with your heart after God forgives you of your sin and transforms you by grace. We should be seeking to store stuff up up there. Not because we're like, oh man, I bet that one got me a good reward up there. No, just because we want to please him and glorify him in this life by serving people. He sees that. He's taking notes of our lives. Um, Let me just give you some interesting statistics. These are... uh, this 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 blew my mind. So there's about 247 million professing Christians in our country. Professing Christians, 247 million. One and a half million out of the 247 million tithe about 10 percent of their their income. Um, if Christians tithed, 
everybody, there would be a surplus of $165 billion. Now, one, uh, one researcher, he did, he did some uh, research, and this is theoretical, but just listen to this. This is because this is, this should help you dream. 25 billion of that could eliminate global hunger and preventable diseases within five years. 15 billion would solve the water crisis and sanitation issues. 12 billion could end illiteracy. 1 billion could fully fund all overseas mission work. And guess what? We'd have 100 billion left to start new ministry expansion across the globe. Friends, there's 25% of the globe today that still has not heard the name of Jesus. But gotta have my cable gotta have my super frappuccino every day i've got it i'm not saying those things are wrong i'm just saying are we stewarding what god has given us do we give it away because if you've been transformed by grace you just say you want money here take my money you need it you need it more than i do take it i'll skip the vacation because you need it you're dying on the streets you know what i find too in life that he's a rewarder of that. He says those who sow generously will reap generously. Even in this life, there are blessings for people who are open-hearted and open-handed with what they own. <clears throat> it's amazing if you think about it, but just dream with me for a minute. Like I said, this is not a stewardship campaign. I'm not telling you what to do with your money, but imagine what we could do as a church if everybody gave 10%. And just trusted God, went out on a limb, even if it stretched you. I'm not saying, I'm not telling you, you have to. I give 10%. This is not a boast. When I started this job, I said, I don't want to see the top 10%. I want you to shave it off and bring it out of the paycheck and give it to the church. Because I don't want to be tempted to see, ooh, it would be nice to have that little money. could get out of debt a little sooner. I could get this and that sooner. So I just, I sew that in. I wish I could give 30%. And I will when I get out of debt. (laughs) I will give more when I get out of debt. But imagine the things we could do. I was thinking about this. If the average salary, let's say like everybody made 30000 that's it. And everybody gave 10% off the top of that. Our budget annually would be $300,000. That would be awesome. Amazing. Do you know what we could do with, with a budget that high? It's not that high <laughs> currently. We have a vestry meeting today, vestry people, by the way. We'll be reminded of that. We'll be reminded that we're working towards a $300,000 budget. That these are all public information, by the way. We don't hide anything here. You see, friends, <clears throat> that was a rabbit I had to chase after for a minute. Here's the thing. This is what this is about. It's about Jesus. Some people say, well, I, may, I only make 50000 a year. I'm not like the rich man. I only make 50000 a year, and I uh, sponsor a child through Compassion International, so I'm good to go. Maybe. <laughs> Great. That, that's good if you know that you're absolutely stewarding your money out of love for Jesus. But there's something deeper, and that is this. Is Jesus my treasure? Is he my prized possession? Is he everything? Do I see my whole existence as longing to him? Do I see the fact that I will not be separated from God for all of eternity in torment like the rich man because Jesus died for my sins? That, so that he is everything. That he's amazing. His tenderheartedness. His strength. His beauty, his power, is he everything? The fundamental question underlying our stewardship of money is, do I love Jesus with every fiber of my being? I know I've got a lot of long way to go in that area, friends. I don't know about you. I've got a long way to go. 
John, uh, Jesus said in John chapter 8 to the Pharisees, he says, if God were your father, you would love me. That's what he's concerned with. He is a jealous, a jealous for our love. He, he, he's, he's angry when our affections are on the things of this earth rather than finding joy and delight in him. Do you know that we are commanded in scripture, delight yourself in the Lord? That at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. It says in, the, in the, his presence is the fullness of joy. Or are we seeking uh, pleasure in our addictions or in our, the things of this life, the vacations, the, the possessions? God desires to be desired because it is where we will find true joy and where he will be most glorified. It's an amazing relationship he invites us into. That's why the fruit of the Holy Spirit is joy. Now, I'm not talking about have you made a decision for him? Have you raised your hand at church camp or in the Baptist church or whatever? I'm not talking about that. I'm glad you did. Or I'm not even talking about trying to please him. This is about my affections for his person. Is he the Lord of my affections? Do I love him with my emotions, with my strength? With all that is within me. This is about being infatuated with the beauty and glory of Jesus. If you don't spend time getting in his presence one-on-one, it's going to be real hard to be infatuated with his beauty. If you don't get time, to, if you don't get time alone in his word to read what he taught, to read who he was, to read about his great sacrifice, to reflect on it and say, Lord, you did this for me? When I was broken, I was out there, drugs and sex and alcohol, and you did this for me? Lord, I love you. You're everything. Sometimes I just get, I just, I'm a weepy guy, and I just get in his presence, and I think about how he took his hand down into the darkness, and he pulled me out of the depraved, horrible lifestyle that I lived, and I just weep in his presence. Lord, why me? Out of everybody that you could have saved, you took me out of this? And gave me grace. It's overwhelming. His grace is overwhelming. I love how one author puts it. He says this. Believing means trusting Jesus not only as our all-sovereign Lord and all-sufficient Savior, but as our all-surpassing treasure. Trusting in Christ as our treasure means seeing and savoring him as a treasure. Christ is not our treasure if we do not treasure him. And treasuring something means being glad to have it. Therefore, saving faith involves no less than being glad to have Jesus himself for who he is. That's beautiful. Wish I could say I wrote it. Coming to a close here, Paul said in uh, the letter to Timothy that we read today, he said, we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. I don't know about you, but I was not born wearing gold jewelry and designer sunglasses. I came out in the old birthday suit. And I think you did too. And that's how I'm going to die. I'm going to go under the ground with none of my earthly possessions. There are no U-Hauls behind hearses. You will not access your storage unit on the corner of 436 and whatever when you are in heaven. Or somewhere else. It won't be accessible. I was listening to a radio program the other day. It just gave an amazing picture in my mind of, of what this is like. There's a community called Bethel in uh, southwest Alaska. There's only about 6,000 people. 
and it's completely off the road roadway system. And so in the summer, they use river transportation. It's their main way of travel. Summer, you know, snowmobiles, dogs, things like that. Oh, man, I looked at the temperatures there. It's the opposite of Florida. But transporting goods in and out of Bethel, Alaska is very difficult, especially getting certain things out, like dead cars. And so there's an epidemic in Bethel, Alaska, of dead cars everywhere because it's too expensive and too difficult to get them transported out somewhere. And so there's dead cars on the side of the road. There's dead cars in people's yards. You go to the airport to try to find a parking space and there's dead cars taking up most of the parking spaces. The lady who was conducting the research was going around. They were driving around all around the community and she had a clicker, a counter, and she was at like 960 something when they got to the end of the interview. I mean, for a community of 6,000 people. But it's a picture... It's a perfect image of earthly riches and material goods because in the end, everything is just rusty, broken down, useless stuff that we won't be able to get out. It will just sit and be of no value in the heavenly places, in the eternal realms. Imagine this with me just for a moment. Imagine there's a tragic plane crash which nobody survives. On that plane was a wealthy media mogul A corporate executive, a playboy and his playmate, and a young woman doing missionary work in the bush in Africa who's contracted a crippling disease. You look around that plane and you think, I see who's got it good. And then in an instant, all of those people are standing before God, stripped of the vacation houses in Fiji, stripped of the VIP MasterCards, stripped of the first class plane seats and designer clothing, and standing before God with nothing but what is in their hearts. Who is rich now? This is the eternal perspective, friends, that if you are a Christian, if you profess that name that you are to hold in your heart and in your mind, because that perspective will help you see that the newest, sleekest iPads and flat screen TVs and the 401k savings for traveling the world when you retire and the half million you inherited and all the stuff, it's nothing It's nothing. It's like a drop in the bucket. It's going to be gone. And when you see him, and when I don't know about you, but when I see him, I want to be able to say, you were my everything. By your grace, you changed me. You changed who I was. And I lived for you. You were my everything, Jesus. Jesus, I just want to get down and I want to kiss and and put my tears on your nail-scarred feet that you died for me. You are my everything, my treasure. And in your presence, there is fullness of joy. Friends, God has given us a material world and possessions because they're good and he wants us to use them for his glory. But we won't be able to do that unless Jesus is our treasure, unless he is absolutely everything. Let's pray. Lord, how easy it is to find joy and delight in things that are not you. God, you want us to come to you for you. And if we come to you for something other than you, we will miss you. So, Lord, we ask. We ask for a great work in each of our hearts, Lord, myself included. 
then in the days to come you would begin to make Jesus so exalted in all of his glory and his beauty in our eyes and our heart. God, get us on our knees before you. Get us in those times of prayer, Lord, before you where we can simply just adore him. One thing I seek, one thing I ask of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Lord, that that would be our mindset, the mindset, the heart of David who sought you in such a deep and intimate way. God, thank you for the stuff that you've given us. It is, there is, it, there's so much good and, there is, and it's not wrong to enjoy it. But Lord, let it not become an idol. Let the stuff that we have not become gods and make us people of great generosity that show the world what it looks like to have a heart that's transformed by the grace and love of Jesus Christ. It is in his mighty name that we pray. Amen.